Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and committed to bringing you ideas and resources that will build your professional development plan. That really is why I am here. You know, whether you're a current nonprofit leader or hope to be one, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit experts who are on the cutting edge of our sector. If you would do me a favor, share this episode with one other person so we can continue to build a global community focused on nonprofit leadership. Now, we had a fantastic conversation this episode, thanks to our friend at the Foundation for the Carolinas, Whitney Feld. And she brought together Charlie Elberson and Diane Gavarkovich to talk about several items that I know will make you think differently about how you communicate with your key funders. Now, Charlie leads a wonderful and innovative venture philanthropy effort called the Reemprise Fund. And trust me that this is one that you'll want to learn more about. I'm confident that you have philanthropists in your community just like Charlie, and it's important to understand the perspective they bring so you can be more effective in attracting and partnering with someone like the Reemprise Fund. Now, what's especially impressive is Charlie's not trying to tell your nonprofit what to do. And in fact, he wants to better understand two key questions. What does success look like for your nonprofit, and how will you know when you get there? Fortunately, his research partner, Diane, has great advice and ideas that will help you as a nonprofit leader better articulate your case for support using quantitative and qualitative data through what she describes as a logic model. And their advice will not only help you uh, be more effective in attracting the thoughtful philanthropists in your community like Charlie and the Reemprise Fund, but better communicate with the donors you already have. Lots of great information here, so don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 98. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find out all of the resources and topics that we discuss, as well as more information on Charlie, Diane, and Whitney, and the great things they're doing to support community philanthropy. Speaking of resources, while you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. Get on our email list so you can get free weekly resources, including podcast episodes like this one. We focus on leadership, and maybe we can help you with your nonprofit strategic plan or reengaging your board of directors through a facilitated session, or maybe you and I can talk about how I can help you on your leadership journey through coaching, training, or your possible participation in one of our unique mastermind programs. Without further ado, let's get into this conversation brought to you in partnership with the Foundation for the Carolinas. In fact, you'll first hear from our friend Whitney Feld, who will set the stage for the conversation, and then you will enjoy that discussion with Charlie Elberson and Diane Gavarkovich. Whitney, thank you for joining me on the path. Thank you for helping to bring this conversation to fruition, Patton. As Vice President of Philanthropic Advancement at Foundation for the Carolinas, I'm privileged to work with generous donors like Charlie Elberson and community leaders like Diane Gavarkovich. As the sixth largest community foundation in the U.S., we work with a broad range of clients who approach philanthropy from many different vantage points. And hopefully at our best, we seek to empower our clients and aid in the joy of giving. 
I'm excited to provide your listeners with an opportunity to hear from Charlie about his unique approach to philanthropy and how he ultimately elected to center on kinship as the cornerstone of his investments. And also from Diane, who empowers funders and nonprofits alike to use data to tell their story and drive impact. Thank you, Whitney. It is indeed impressive what you and the Foundation for the Carolinas are doing in our community. And the lessons that Diane and Charlie are going to share, I know, are going to benefit our listeners everywhere. So with that, let's turn to Charlie and Diane. Diane and Charlie, thank you for joining me on the path. I am excited to dive into this conversation about issues that I know are thought provoking for our listeners. You know, they're executive directors, they're fundraisers, they're board members, and they're contemplating the relationship with funders like Charlie and the Reemprise Fund. And I know that they're gonna benefit from your insight, Charlie, and Diane, yours as well, particularly as we talk about the concept of kinship which I think is fascinating and one that frankly, our listeners need to better understand. So before we dive into all this, I wanna thank our friends at the Foundation for the Carolinas, Whitney Feld for putting this conversation together. And I'll start Charlie with you. What is the Reemprise Fund and how did you, your journey lead you to this philanthropic initiative? Patton, um, when I talk about the Reemprise Fund, I found it's, it's beneficial to start with a name because the name is unusual. It's my dad's initials, Robert Evans Elberson, R-E-E, and he created the fund uh, as part of his estate plan. It's a legacy, like legacy fund. He wanted his his money to to reward and and invigorate innovative and entrepreneurial thinking um, in in the world of social good. Um, he honestly knew very little about foundations, knew only a little bit about nonprofit work from serving on a couple of boards. Um, but he knew what he wanted the money to do. I mean, he knew, he knew in general concept what he wanted to, to motivate um, nonprofits to do with this money. Um, so it fell to me to build a model from that intent uh, for Reemprise Fund um, to reward that sort of innovative thinking. Um, and as we were creating this model, I did my own research because I don't come from the not-for-profit or foundation world either. Um, I, come from a, um, I come from a marketing background for many years. Um, and so um, I did what I've always done with my clients. I listened to what my dad said, then I took it away and formulated what strategies seemed to reflect his intent. Well, it turns out those strategies fit what was an emerging trend in philanthropy, um, which I'm, I'm pretty sure everyone knows um, venture philanthropy just as, a, as an idea. Um, and the idea of venture philanthropy is simply that uh, we're going to have very clearly stated goals or opportunities for impact. Uh, we're going to have a, a deliberate intentional plan um, through which those can be achieved. Uh, we're going to accept and to some degree embrace risk as part of those initiatives. And we're going to measure and we're going to track how venture is performing against some benchmarks that have been predetermined. And then finally, as a funder and as a, as a partner nonprofit, we're all going to be ready to adapt as those measures reflect the need to adapt in order to optimize the impact of whatever venture or initiative we're funding. Those are general principles found in, well, a lot more philanthropy now than when we set this thing up. But when we created Reemprise Fund, at least in the market of Charlotte, North Carolina, where we are, it was it was still a relatively new um, approach to, to, to being a funder. And because uh, we're a donor advised fund operating through the community foundation here, which is the foundation for the Carolinas, 
um, which is a, a very progressive and large um, institution in our in our city. Um, having that partner um, was really helpful to get the thing rolling probably about 12, 14 years ago. Fantastic. And uh, well, Charlie, I, I want to unpack that further because sure. I'm glad that you are seeing more evidence of this type of venture philanthropy, if you will. But as you noted, I think a lot of funders didn't historically embrace that perhaps and, and still don't in some cases. But Diane, let me start with you, however, before we go back to Charlie about talk about your journey. Uh, you've done great work studying nonprofits, helping communities understand their impact. And how did it lead you to this connection to Charlie and the Reimprise Fund? Sure, and thank you for having me. So I've been doing community research and program evaluation for about, I guess, 10 years, almost 10 years now. And I've worked really closely with nonprofits and a lot of nonprofits will know that they're asked from their funders for metrics. And fortunately, some of them such as Charlie will actually pay for these. So that's actually how I met Charlie was through one of his, one of the projects that he was funding was the opportunity to evaluate it. And I've been able to form a relationship with Charlie since then and have these really great, interesting and great conversations about um, venture philanthropy and um, kinship, which we'll talk more about as well. So that's kind of how I've gotten into more of the philanthropy is hopefully being able to help nonprofits respond to those who they're receiving funding from, but also having more conversations with actual foundations about measurement and um, impact. Love that. And Diane, I, I, I know you're going to offer some advice to our listeners because I think, frankly, many leaders are, are concerned they don't provide enough detail for a funder like Charlie and Reimprise. And of course, Charlie, I know you're going to share the fact that I guess you're open to risk taking. And I wonder if you might share again that what differentiates, I believe, Reimprise is that you're willing to take some risks, but maybe you could elaborate further on how you approach that. Yeah, happy to talk about risk. Um, and yeah, the, the the whole concept of risk um, is can be a challenging one um, just on principle, um, but risk is part of any strategy. Um, any strategy is pointing to a future state that doesn't exist yet. Um, and whatever we're going to do to get to that future state, that desired future state, um, as with every plan, is going to impact unexpected and unanticipated opportunities um, or challenges. And so if you frame it up that way, um, risk is just part of any strategy. What makes risk risky is when we don't take the time and effort to, one, try and identify where risks might be encountered. But secondly, if we're not prepared to deal with risk when it emerges. So risk is only risky when we're not ready for it. Right. So being prepared for risk and baking up the baking in the idea of we're going to encounter the unexpected. So let's be prepared for that. Let's build in milestones. Let's check in and say, okay, what's happening here that we thought would happen? How are we doing? What's happening that we didn't? And is it a is it a challenge or that, that we need to address? Is it a barrier to be overcome? Or is it an opportunity to be seized? And finally, is whatever we encounter potentially terminal? Meaning, is is it pointing to that this is not a viable idea? And then what do we do about that? Um, so again, the best place for risk is out in, out in the open where we can deal with it. The worst place, place for risk 
is in the shadow where we are not ready for it. Such a good point. And it leads to my follow-up question is when you look at an organization and its leadership, I would guess that their ability to manage risk, would that be the kind of thing you're looking for? For that listener out there like, all right, how do I demonstrate that I am a good risk manager? Is, is that among the things you're looking for? Very much so. And you know, every, I think every great outcome, um, every great impact that Reimprise has been involved with has to some degree been in part been because of the, the human relationships that we've been able to forge and those human relationships, like every healthy human relationship, um, need to include transparency, need to include the ability to be candid with one another. And this is a challenge both for funders and, and for organizations. And I will challenge my other funders to be first, to jump in first, to be transparent, to be candid, to let the organization know that this is the kind of relationship that you want. Um, I think a lot of funders um, send uh, signals that they probably don't mean to, um, that they are not willing to be open to these candid conversations. Um, Agreed. To some degree, they're creating a structure or a paradigm where the not-for-profit has to be very guarded about right. the information that they share, when they share it, and how they share it. That's not healthy, and even and even worse, I think it limits the impact of the money that I'm investing with that nonprofit. So, with desire to optimize that money. If I'm willing to take first step and be candid, say, here's where we are, here's why we're here, here's how we're gonna deal with it, it sends the right signal to my partner nonprofit and their leaders um, that they can be equally candid with me. So it's a much healthier way of working. I think that's remarkable and, and impressive because I agree with you as a fundraiser during my career, <laughs> Charlie, I, I wouldn't want to be vulnerable in a sense or sure. be as transparent because I wanna impress the funder but you want to get that money. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so I, I'm, I'm just grateful. And again, I hope this encourages other funders to consider the dialogue you've uh, created. And uh, Diane, you know, you've uh, helped Charlie explore and research some of these organizations. I mean, what are the characteristics you're seeing, particularly in those that succeed in the, the dynamic like Charlie describes? So exactly what you all are talking about right now, just this idea of being candid and transparent because when an evaluator goes in and they're already going to be guarded with me, kind of assuming that I'm there to do something wrong. Um, I used to joke and depends on the generation that is listening to this, but I used to like look at people used to look at me like I was the Bob's from office space um, that like I'm out, you know, out to get them or something like that. And I was like, that's not people, the organizations that are looking to improve that are looking to their data to tell them things as opposed to looking for their data to tell them to tell the story they wanted to tell um and that's comes from funders like charlie being transparent being willing to have those open conversations about being willing to take risks let's helps them be more candid but there's such a culture where they're worried about funding that they're definitely going to be more guarded and that stops the evaluation and also stops i think their their success and their ability to improve um, so I think that candidness and transparency with your, everyone involved is what really I think is the most necessary for success, at least what I've seen. That's such a good point. And, and again, I'm, I'm just excited. This may lead to conversations between organizations and funders, because perhaps, Charlie, there are more funders who are open to this, uh, the, the ability to take chances. But 
I'm sure, Charlie, you you still want to be sensitive to your investment making a difference. So if I tell you I'm going to take a chance and you're giving me a chance to do so, you're still going to hold me accountable. And I wonder if you might talk about how do you kind of assure there is accountability once you've invested in a nonprofit? Yeah, it's the, the nature of, um, well, it's it's the nature of, of, of frankly, not-for-profit people um, that they are driven and motivated by their passion um, to create change in the world. Otherwise, they would um, get a real job um, that, that pays an actual money and be more <laughs> right. lucrative. Um, I mean, they're they're part of what makes um, these folks amazing um, is that their their passion, their compassion, is so um, powerful that it steers them into, into these this, these these choices that they make in their lives. Um, I have to respect that because I I didn't do it. I, I I'm in awe, frankly, of some of the folks that I get to be in relationship with. Um, but I also have to recognize that that passion. Um, is so can be so powerful um, that if uh, we don't work together to build a plan for which we are both mutually accountable, um, that includes stage gates, check-ins, um, periods where we're going to come together um, and really examine uh, in that that harsh, transparent light that I talked about um, how the plan is proceeding, uh, how the people involved are performing, including me. Um, and whether the money that we are investing and the time and the energy just is important that uh, we share in our investment. And that, it, how is that performing? And is it performing as we expected? In what ways is it not? Um, and ultimately, how are we doing in terms of garnering the impact that we defined up front? Um, and this is circling back. This is where measurement really becomes so important. Um, I, I try and start every relationship with every initiative, every investment with two questions. How are we going to define success? How are we going to know if we're getting it? Those are very simple, but very challenging questions. Absolutely. Uh, and I think, you know, people get very hung up on the first one, invest a lot of effort into it. Um, in actuality, all the real juice is in that second question. Because when we determine how we're going to define success and how we're going to know if we're going to get it, if we have relevant, valid methods to determining how we are proceeding on the path of success, it's so much easier and better um, to, to leverage accountability because we can we have a valid measure and we have valid, valid things to look at at each stage gate or we can look at each other and go, this is working like we thought, everybody's performing as we said we would um, and things are proceeding toward the impact that we defined or not. But what, yeah, what to, that, that's why it's so important. Uh, it's, love that. And, and Charlie, what kind of time horizons are you looking for? I mean, I know it varies, I guess, based on the organization, the program, but um, what general timelines are you looking for? Or does it completely vary depending on the nature of the program you're funding? Um, well, Pat, we do a lot of prototyping and piloting and a lot of seed money for um, kind of experimental initiatives. Right. So what a lot of what a lot of what our operation is, and again, this is a very venture philanthropy sort of thing to do, is we will look at an organization and an idea that they have that might, as we say in the South, that might could work. <laughs> right. And uh, since we're investing in might could ideas, um, it makes sense to do something small, find out what happens, and then decide how will that scale. What what makes sense to to blow it out. Um, right. And and in some ways, uh, what we find ourselves in, because I'm friends with a lot of other funders that are not only larger, but are probably more institutionally rigid than, than, 
than our operation. Yeah. Um, you know, they're kind of watching us to say, okay, what what prototypes are you doing uh, that are that showing true promise? Because once that's demonstrated, it's time for what we call the big money to show up and to do what they do, which is a more institutionalized approach to a, to a, um, a program. Um, so these sorts of pilots are usually anywhere from 18 months to sometimes three years. Right. Um, I mean, it takes time to create and build and measure and, and assess um, these kinds of programs and see how, they, how they're performing. Uh, thank you, because again, and you alluded to it, as an organizational leader, I'm sometimes nervous that, all right, I've got to show progress really quickly. And so the fact that you are open to those kind of pilots, it may take 18 to 18 months to three years, I think is important. But it also underscores an important point that perhaps as an organizational leader, I could go to a funder and talk about a, a an experiment, if you will, the pilot. And that's, of course, what you've championed for a, a great while, haven't you, Charlie? Well, yeah, and it's, I mean, and, and yeah, the funder is, I mean, I'm not patient, um, and the funder is eager um, and enthusiastic <laughs> about the outcome just as much as you are. Right. Um, so, I mean, this is, again, why it's so important to build these stage gates and these measures into place as you proceed, um, because ultimately we're, we're chasing an impact that does, like I said, it's a reality that doesn't exist yet that we're trying to create. So it makes sense for us to sit down together in the interim and say, okay, how's things, how are things proceeding? So to have that plan, have those stage gates and have the measures in place. Yeah, well put. And Diane, let me go back to you. As, as you advise organizations, you're, how do they better prepare for evaluation? I think a lot of them are nervous about it, unsure how to prepare themselves for funders who are gonna ask good questions. I wonder if you might offer advice as to ways they could do that better. Sure. So I think there are a few things. I think that sometimes a lot of organizations will get overwhelmed because there is so much information they could be looking at. So the first thing I always talk to to organizations about is really prioritizing, figuring out what are those main things that you're looking to accomplish and then how can we work backwards and figuring out how we can measure those those particular things. Um, also just kind of having good records and knowing what you're doing and how much you're doing it, um, is really important. Um, right. just the basic, we are, we want outcomes, but we can't understand outcomes if we don't understand the processes and we don't understand things like how many people are served and how often they're served and when they were served by whom, um, especially if we want to be looking to improve. So having some of those basics down and then essentially the first two things I always do when I'm thinking through evaluation is kind of having some guiding questions and then also having a logic model. Ultimately, a lot of organizations have pretty good understanding of what their final long-term outcome that they're looking to is, right. but there's not a ton of agreement exactly about how they're getting there and really understanding, okay, well, what behaviors need to happen or what changes need to happen or what policies need to be in place for this larger condition to change. All right, well then, what needs to happen for those things to happen right. and really understanding coming together as a group and agreeing upon those things um, will help a lot um, and helps a lot with this prioritization process and makes it a lot less nebulous and a lot less kind of big picture scary and can really dig in on a few things that make sense for your organization. Well, and Diane, you're such a good, an advocate for organizations understanding community data 
And I wonder if you could explain or maybe give an example. So I, I guess I, I need to know beyond just the silo in which I work as a nonprofit leader, but are there certain examples you encourage organizations to understand about community data? Sure. Um, I think there's a few things. There's just like the basic demographics. So it's really helpful to know kind of who you're serving compared to who lives in your community. Um, so that's kind of even just like census, basic census data. But then there's a lot more kind of localized data. So if you're working with the school system, there's school system data. If you're talking about improving third grade reading scores, it's really helpful if you know what the third grade reading scores are. So you have that community data from, in our case in Charlotte, Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools, but you look to um, different comparison points. So say you serve a pop certain population, what is their th currently their third grade scores? What are the third grade scores of other students who may look like them elsewhere? And then also just overall, so we can have a better idea of what what are realistic goals um, and what kinds of gaps we're trying to close. Yeah, I love that, and it only helps helps sharpen my case, doesn't it? Uh, if I'm appealing to a funder, that I both understand my own numbers, but I understand the numbers of the community around me, how we compare, and how we are trying to move the needle, whatever needle that might be. Uh, Charlie, when you bring Diane into a project, someone like Diane, Diane herself, what are you looking to get from that as you kind of bring evaluation to your process and thinking? Um, well, the, the first best thing uh, is her brain. <laughs> um, and the uh, just the, the, the whole concept of applying a logic model um, to the work that the organization does um, is, is, is often, um, a new idea, sometimes an exotic idea, um, to some of the uh, not-for-profit leaders uh, that we encounter. Um, but Diane is so fluent and capable of interpreting how to apply a logic model um, in the not-for-profit sectors that uh, categories that we work with um, that it, it it's easy for them to apprehend and embrace um, how to apply a logic model to the work they do. Um, so ha having a professional is really important. Uh, and sorry to interrupt you, Charlie. Could, could you give me an example of a good logic model for those listeners hey, Diane, who may not be clear, or did, should Diane maybe? <laughs> can she give us a good example? Okay. Let, let's do this, Diane. Tell them what a logic model is, and then um, if I need to, I'll interpret. <laughs> sure. So essentially, a logic model is a one-page picture of what your organization does and what it hopes to accomplish. So it's a really good communication tool. It's yeah, a good absolutely. tool to kind of go back to essentially you're saying these are the things that we do so here are inputs here are the activities that our organization is doing here are the outputs of those activities so the number of people we serve the number of community or partners that we might have and then the most critical part for particularly outcome evaluation is all right what do we think is accomplished from that so there's three layers people can go about this in different ways how i usually approach it is a short-term intermediate and long-term so short terms what are the immediate knowledge change um, that you're looking for so skills awareness the things that you can kind of change a little bit more immediately and then because of those changes in skills or knowledge what behavior changes or policy changes um, do you expect to see and then because of those behavior and policy or whatever changes um, action oriented changes are occurring what conditions are then going to change so really easy simple examples usually around something like um, trying to quit smoking so 
a short term might be, you know, increased knowledge of how to go of aware of resources that can help you quit smoking. Behavior would be use of those resources, and then hopefully the condition would be um, successful quit attempt. That's so, so helpful. And very linear. Let me give an overlay. Yeah, because Charlie, I was going to ask you. I I don't think a lot of nonprofits effectively articulate a logic model. Certainly not within a one page. But what do you think? No. Well, it's, I mean, and, and the reason why um, it's such a fabulous resource to be able to bring a brain like Diane's into a conversation like the ones we often have um, is because nonprofit people like to talk about their activities. Um, I would too. It's how they spend and invest all their time. It's where all their effort and work is um, and their gratification. Um, on the other hand, um, I'm talking about impacts. So there, there needs to be a bridge between activities and impacts. I mean, the activities have outcomes, um, have outputs. Those outputs have outcomes. Those outcomes create impacts. So I mean, creating that linear logic between activities and outputs and outcomes to the real impact that's happening out in communities and in the world gives funders like me um, the ability to bridge what nonprofits are used to talking about, which are activities, and what in fact I am buying with the money or trying to buy with the money, which are impacts. So since I'm in the impact buying business, I need to help my nonprofit understand how their activities generate outputs and how those outputs lead to outcomes, ultimately to the impact that I want to create with the investment we're making. Such good advice. And again, I know that our listeners, I hope are paying close attention because they will be more effective in fundamentally achieving their mission and frankly, getting people like Charlie and Reemprise to invest in them if they can uh, show that exact example of the logic model. Uh, Charlie, I'm gonna shift gears on you. Um, Obviously, kinship is something that you have, it sounds like is crystallized in your mind. You're a wonderful champion of the concept. Let's start with that. What is kinship? And then we can maybe unpack it further. You bet. Um, Well, so this whole idea of kinship, um, we had been, uh, I've been doing philanthropy for 10 years, um, worked with maybe about 100 different organizations, 125 discrete initiatives by that point. Um, It was time to step back and assess uh, how, how we did. And honestly, about maybe a third to 40% of them were, were really impressive. Um, The majority were middling and then the remainder minority um, didn't really get off the launching pad. So I looked at the ones that were really high performing initiatives um, because I'm trying to find what's the commonality. Um, And inevitably, as I dug into it, what I found was that the richness of relationship um, that the organization had with uh, with the the people that they serve um, was a key determinant of whether the outcomes that we had we had really set forth and the impacts that we had defined, the successes we were seeking, um, were, were in fact activated and realized. So relationship clearly had something to do with a successful recipe. Right. At about that same time, one of my grantees, we were talking and he was saying, you know, I've worked with you now and you really need to read this book and learn about this guy. So the book was called Tattoos on the Heart. It was by Gregory Boyle, Father Gregory Boyle, who was the founder and director of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles. Um, and he was the one who um, lent me this word kinship um, for what I had discerned through our own work. 
um, and his book about the power of compassion, the power of, of these relationships to change things that seemed impossible to change, in his case, uh, gang members. Um, because honestly speaking, the, the, a gang member exists solely for the destruction of his rival. Right. It's an, it, it, the, the idea that they could work cooperatively, be friends um, in transforming each other's lives it's just so far-fetched, and yet that's what Father Boyle has demonstrated again and again and again. So the power of these relationships. So what I came up on was, all right, if I can help organizations leverage the power of unlikely relationships, which is kind of how I'm shorthanding this kinship concept, leveraging the power of unlikely relationships um, leads to extraordinary impacts um, in so many cases. So that changed, um, so we integrated that concept into the model. Um, so we are now funding um, initiatives that leverage this power, this power of unlikely relationships between uh, individuals or groups of people um, that without uh, investing time, effort, and some creative imagination uh, are never or would never become friends, would never cooperate, uh, would never um, feel that sense of kinship that I think we all know is what in fact changes the world. Yes. Um, it, even if it's only one person at a time. So how that's do I the kinship idea. <laughs> Sorry, how do I demonstrate that uh, concept to you, Charlie? If an organization's trying to illustrate it's embracing kinship that you and Father Bull have talked about, uh, are there different ways that manifests itself that they can indeed illustrate it? Um, it's, it's often, I mean, I'll often, um, get a grasp of the organization's work um, from conversations with particularly the ED or, or the program people right? Uh, as they are discussing how their activities, remember talking, how, how their activities create the um, outcomes that they are seeking, they will often reference um, this power of relationship. Um, I think, um, and, and I was, I mean, it's just contemplating listening to Diane talk that, um, as they are telling their story, um, they are sort of doing it on parallel paths because as a nonprofit is telling their story on one part of it, they'll talk about the quality of the relationships that they engender and foster uh, with the people they serve. And at the parallel time, they're also talking about what the impact is um, once those, as those relationships are engendered and fostered, for example, uh, one of the groups we're funding is a group that uh, promotes literacy um, by tutoring and mentorship. Uh, the group had a, demonstrated a very solid understanding that the impact that they're creating is not only with the kid, but with the tutor. Right. Um, I, I think their slogan is something along the lines of tutor a kid, change two lives. Uh, well, that's a pretty clear demonstration that they grasp the, the, the underlying dynamic that goes on when the kid is um, changing their life and, and in fact becoming literate, becoming a, a, a lifelong learner through this, through this relationship with their new mentor, the mentor's life is changing too because they're discovering things about themselves, um, about other people um, or um, other cultures or relationships um, that they otherwise wouldn't, their life is being changed as well. So this is the kind of thing where, where I get a hint that this is a group that clearly understands how to leverage the power of an unlikely relationship. Such a good example. And yeah, you clarified in my mind, at least that 
it's more than just literacy instruction in that case. It is indeed a broader relationship building, which is going to impact a community, a family, a community even more. I, yeah, I'll just I'll just add in that um, in in the last year and a half that we've really been been doing this work around kinship. Um, I mean, I, I I have to say that uh, being working in philanthropy and grant making is extraordinary, extraordinarily rewarding and gratifying. But particularly as we brought this idea in of fostering kinship and, and leaning into it and being a part of helping um, generate and engender this sort of power in the world, uh, it's even more gratifying and rewarding. Um, it is it is the most joyful thing I've ever done in my life wow. um, to be a part of fostering and engendering these kinds of relationships and to know at the end of the day that I, I've had a small part in participating in creating these, uh, I don't know what, what a better feeling could be. Well, I'm grateful you're articulating that and sharing that. And again, I think it's something others should embrace. And we'll talk about that in a minute because I am curious as you talk to other funders, Charlie, <laughs> the, the, the interaction you have with them. But they Diane, I want to ask- <laughs> yeah, good. And we, we want to maintain that level of intrigue. Um, but Diane, I think in, in addition to your work with Charlie, your doctoral capstone focused on integrating kinship. And so I wonder if you could talk about, yeah, what were you looking for in your study and what did you find? Sure. So um, I was fortunate enough to work with Charlie for my capstone and to really dig into this issue of kinship, but also how do we go about then taking this concept of kinship and integrating into grant making. And then from there, like, how do we go about measuring it? So it was a really interesting and personally fulfilling topic to take on and consider in my work and in my life. So what we looked for essentially was kind of understanding better how people conceptualize kinship. And I think there was a few learnings there. And I think this is important for people to realize is that Um, specifically with the topic of kinship, there were certain groups such as um, social work who immediately think of kinship as kinship care, so foster foster children. So just kind of remembering that those sorts of things exist, so that some terminology, that kinship for me, I kind of go more towards the father Boyle because I'm not super in that world, but for some individuals, they're going to be in that that a particular like legal mindset or social work or whatever, like even like anthropologists have a particular meaning for it. So just kind of considering those types of meanings. Um, but it got really interesting. I did a lot of interviews with people that Charlie has um, interviewed in the past and also are funded in the past, but then also just community leaders in completely different areas. So arts, religion, um, education, health, to kind of see how they saw kinship and how they saw it like alive in their work um, and in the community. And we kind of just ended up identifying themes. So connection, collaboration, um, proximity, access, availability, vulnerability. So all of these different themes um, that we identified of, okay, well then how do you engender that in your work? How are you creating access? How are you becoming available? How are you bringing grace to your work? Um, and bringing openness and bringing vulnerability. And that really emphasized the need for when we do go about evaluation that not every project is gonna do all of those themes. Um, So being open to the fact that you're not gonna be able to say all of these organizations did something that increased access or all of these organizations did something that increased proximity, but that the pieces 
come together to increase kinship greatly in our um, and more broadly in our community. Um, and then another piece of this as well um, with when you're when we're measure, measuring is that we're not just looking at the people that are quote unquote served. So just the example that Charlie just gave about um, it's not just about this child that's tutored, but the person doing the tutoring and that we need to think about that when we're measuring as well, that we're not, that this is not, there's a mutuality, mutuality here. And that's really important when we're thinking about measurement as well. Diane, is it fair that a lot of nonprofits maybe weren't um, uh, illuminating these, the evidence of kinship that you were discussing, or I guess turning that into another way that nonprofit leaders can better articulate perhaps the kinship that exists. And maybe that's among the things you were pulling out of them during these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this gets to the issue that we kind of have in evaluation and, and um, with funders as well is that it's going to be more qualitative than quantitative. And that's harder for, I think, people to get their head around for first, but also for people to feel like it's a the story worth telling that somebody wants to listen to you. Um, Cause we kind of get into this pattern of how many people accomplish X, Y, Z. We want right. to see percentages, we want to see growth and it's harder to accomplish seeing that growth through the qualitative data and through stories. Um, and I have always had more of the natural inclination towards quantitative when I was a teacher, I taught math. So right. um, like I always go towards that way, which is why this was a, such a great process for me um, and great challenge for me and to um, force me to always think more qualitatively in my thinking. Um, but yeah, I think that is working with nonprofits then to better tell their story and have, you can tell those quantitative stories as well, but through these lenses of kinship and relationship. And I think that's where when you integrate those two things together is how you can really be telling your story in a great way. I love that. And again, I know you and I both will applaud Charlie for elevating qualitative evidence and research here mm -hmm. that you're right. I think many nonprofits are, are concerned about the quantitative numbers and they, of course, cannot dismiss that. But Charlie, back to you um, in terms of this kinship model, uh, you certainly were embracing that before the pandemic. But I'm wondering what you've seen play out, you know, during this time as it relates to kinship. Any new insight maybe during this kind of difficult time for all nonprofits? Um, Patton, it's uh, it's been a little bit eye-opening, um, and and uh, and what's transpired over the past year, um, of course, for everyone. One of the things that I um, that I've seen that's been really interesting is, um, you know, we Charlotte has some pretty major um, not-for-profit organizations, some big institutions, some big brands in here um, that uh, serve various communities within within our within our city. Um, and when the pandemic hit, uh, funders, major funders, uh, looked to some of these larger organizations to kind of step in, step up, um, and demonstrate that they were um, delivering on creating meaningful change since it was so acute and so needed. Well, some of these larger organizations had trouble um, um, demonstrating that they could do that. Um, to, and, and this frustrated these, these larger funders um, because they were like, okay, well, this is when we really need you. To, to, to be a major, to create major impact. Uh, and you seem, you seem not to be able to, to demonstrate that you can do that. Well, meanwhile, um, sort of in the undercurrent, uh, are smaller organizations uh, that had perhaps uh, invested more time, more effort, more energy, more kinship, um, had some perhaps 
better trust, more trust, more authenticity in their connection to the communities they serve. Um, and a lot of these organizations were organizations that I had funded in the past. Um, and so I've, I've had several instances where I've had some pretty major funders look at me and go say, okay, these big brand names are really seem to be struggling to demonstrate that they can do what we need to have happen. Yep. Who are the little organizations that we need to be talking to who actually have the trust and have the connection that we need to create to really do what needs to be done here? Um, and my point is, you know, it's great. Forge those relationships. Do your homework. Um, I'll help if I can. Um, but this is a, a real opportunity for these funders perhaps to deepen their roots uh, into perhaps deeper into what I call the undercurrent of the smaller organizations that are maybe a little more invested in kinship. Yeah, I love that. And of course, that's just such a win-win that you're lifting up the success stories there and you're illuminating, I guess, in the eyes of these other larger funders in some cases, the model that you have so uh, successfully put into place. In fact, that leads me to a question, Charlie. Um, as you talk to other funders, I'm guessing they're intrigued by what you're doing or what kind of questions do you get and do you think more funders are going to embrace some of the principles you have? Um, it, it, it's led to a lot of really um, gratifying and interesting conversations uh, with some other, um, well, philanthropic entities, other funders. Um, you know, they, the, we have to acknowledge that, you know, I'm a donor advised fund. I'm one individual. I don't have a board. Um, I don't have to issue reports. I report to me. Um, right. uh, you know, I, I talk to my deceased father a lot and ask his permission to do things <laughs> as far as I go, man. Right. right. Um, so, you know, my dynamic is very different from theirs. Um, and, you know, we are operating uh, at this venture philanthropy level, seed money, small grants, really hands on. So it's a different dynamic. Um, and I, I don't want to get anybody confused that to think that institutional funders um, are, are have so much power. Um, and part of their power comes from the fact that they are institutional in, in their ability to create big sweeping change and movement. Um, but that doesn't mean that they can stay ascendant, that they can just hover above the community at what I call the issue level. Um, every issue is in fact comprised of a vast number of human beings. People experience homelessness. Well, that's a bunch of people. Um, that are involved in that. So what it has led me to do is to talk to um, to uh, the, these funders with the phrase that I stole from, I steal a lot of phrases. I stole from Malcolm <laughs> okay. Gladwell. I stole this from Malcolm Gladwell and I see um, it's called descend into the particulars, uh, which simply means get involved with the details. Um, take the time and effort to really understand what's going on on the ground with the people um, don't just stay hovered above at the issue level, but get at the human level, um, which I, I think has been the most um, relevant pieces of the conversations that I've had, because um, it's been an invitation for these funders to perhaps, you know, descend into the particulars of, of a situation um, so they can understand it better. Um, and I think they'll make smarter investments as a result. Uh, it's fantastic. And I know this conversation is going to lead to, I think, a lot of thought-provoking conversations within organizations uh, and then hopefully between organizations and existing and potential funders. 
Uh, Diane and Charlie, y'all have been fantastic in, in uh, addressing these issues, illuminating these issues. And I'm gonna ask Diane first and then Charlie kind of for some final thoughts, because you've helped us understand, you know, the importance of the, one, the relationship, I think, nonprofit leaders can have with their funders. And Charlie, you have been so gracious in allowing that kind of relationship. Uh, Diane, you, you made so clear, how do we demonstrate better both the quantitative and the qualitative success of our nonprofits, especially telling our story through a logic model. And I'm just grateful that you helped spell that out. And Charlie, you and Diane both, of course, encourage us to embrace kinship. So great takeaways, uh, appreciate that. And, and Diane, I guess in, in closing, do you have any other thoughts or suggestions that might help a nonprofit leader pondering all of these topics? Uh, sure. So I think um, two main things is one, this conversation to just really trying to be open. Um, obviously, it's going to be easier with some funders and others, but trying to be open at least um, to the possibility of when if you're going into the evaluation process to have an open mind um, and to kind of also go in with this idea of how can we improve, not how can we prove. So what are the things that we can go about improving and how can we use this data to do that as opposed to going in with the mindset of how can we find data that proves that what we're doing um, is great and should be funded? That's a great not that, distinction. Not, that that, not something that should also, that will hopefully also happen, but right, really right. go in with the mindset of how can we learn how to improve? Yeah, thank you. That's an important distinction and I'm glad you lifted up. And Charlie, you've been a wonderful coach and counsel to many nonprofit leaders. What advice might you leave them with as we close this conversation? Um, one of the things that, that I talk about a lot is, um, you know, because we're, we're chasing a defined impact I and mean, I'm buying, like I said, I'm, I'm buying an impact. Um, what, what I realized is that it is incumbent upon um, myself and the nonprofit organization I'm working with to collectively define the impact we're chasing. Um, that's a responsibility that we share. Um, and I found that to be surprisingly unique. Um, and when a not-for-profit doesn't lean into that possibility and just waits for or uses some easy measure, literacy is a, is a good one, for example. Right. A lot of things have to happen before a child on the path to being illiterate becomes literate. There's a lot of important things that have to go on before that final number is achieved. And as a funder, I should, I'm not going to be expected to know what those stages are. Um, if I'm, I want to know, right. I'd like to know, I'd like to know what's meaningfully happening to that kid, <clears throat> but I'm not going to know the nonprofit that's engaged in a relationship of traveling with that child toward literacy has to tell me what are the important things that are happening to that kid and how can we measure them? And the nonprofit, the not-for-profit may not know how to measure it, but they know it needs to be measured. And if they come to me and say, these are the important things that are happening to the kid, we want to get funding to make those things happen. And part of what we want to use that funding for is to get a better understanding of the degree to which our kids are achieving that, that important stage. Right. Well, I so respect that. I don't expect them to, you know, just somehow go dig up money to measure things and then bring it to me. I'm happy to be a partner in that. Um, but they have to start that. That has to be on their initiative. I would love that invitation. 
as as a funder to be in that conversation. Um, but it is incumbent, and it should. I want to empower the not for profit leaders. Don't don't expect your funders to define impact. That is a co-authorship. You work with them to define the impact that you want to create in the world. It's fantastic. Uh, you've offered many good quotes throughout, Charlie, but that one that you just said <laughs> might be the one that becomes a headline. And it's good advice. And again, I applaud both your generosity and the innovation with which you've encouraged uh, in relationships with nonprofits. So thank you both. Uh, as you know, I ask all my guests as a parting gift to offer a reading recommendation. So Diane, can I start with you? What's one good book that's been meaningful to you or you might recommend to a nonprofit leader? Sure, I'm actually gonna do a um, online resource if that's okay. Um, it's called the Community Toolbox. Absolutely. It's through um, Kansas University, but you can just Google Community Toolbox and it has a really great resources from organizational strategy, but also around evaluation and how to go about doing a lot of this work that we've been talking about, but even also things like managing volunteers and there's toolkits in there with checklists. So it's, um, you can consider it a very large book. It has a great, <laughs> um, that is... and it's really great, really great resource that I use with my, my administration of nonprofit students a lot. So fantastic. That is, sounds like a gold mine. Uh, if we go to that site and we will indeed include it in the show notes, Charlie, same question, anything you might recommend? Obviously, Father Boyle is someone we've talked about, but yeah. you can you can add to that. That doesn't have okay. to be your only one. Somehow I knew Diane was going to give me a big book. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, obviously, Father Boyle, he has two books, Tattoos on the Heart um, and Barking to the Choir. Um, um, they're both just lovely books, um, I've, and I've read them both several times. I prefer the audio version because he delivers them himself. Um, and he's a natural and it's um, entertaining and enlightening. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll have a great time and you'll learn a lot. Um, the book I'm reading now um, is I'm not laughing or crying and it's not particularly entertaining, but extraordinarily informative, Thinking Fast and Slow um, by a guy named Daniel Kahneman. Um, it's about um, decision behavior um, and sort of how people think. It's a lot about biases and confirmation um, and it, helped me understand me and how I make decisions, um, but it also helped me kind of understand how the world becomes the way the world becomes because we're all just this seething mass of biases and confirmation bias and um, heuristics, et cetera. Um, so it's made me a lot smarter, but also a little bit more empathetic, I thinking fast and slow. Love that. In fact, it is on the shelf behind me. It is one of my Oh, is it really? Okay. And, and okay. I could not agree more. I'm delighted to lift it up. In fact, I think I've had another recent uh, guest on the podcast lift it up. So yeah, Charlie, that's a book we all need to be reading. Clearly it's yeah. a hot one. And thank you for lifting up. And thank you both for lifting up all of these uh, topics. And I'm very grateful to have this conversation on the path. Thank you, Pat. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Diane and Charlie as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide your professional journey and certainly enhance your organization's communication to its key funders. Don't forget the show notes are available on our website, patentmcdowell.com, and you can find out more about Charlie and the Reimprise Fund, Diane's work through DTG Community Services, and, of course, access to Whitney's expertise through the Foundation for the Carolinas. As always, thanks for sharing this episode with someone else on the path. 
And if you haven't already, you can subscribe. Just go to the podcast page at patmcdowell.com and you'll see links to all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing at least once a month. And if you like these episodes that feature the funder perspective, we've got some other good ones for you to check out. In particular, recently we had Rhett Mabry, the president of the Duke Endowment, episode number 93. And in fact, next episode, number 99, will feature a return visit from Michael Marsicano from the Foundation for the Carolinas, and he will bring his insight on all things philanthropy across the country and, frankly, around the world. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.